0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Time for the Reading Room on 3RRR. Mel Cranenberg's back in the house. G'day, Mel. I am here. This is the first time we've seen you (laughs) in 2017.
1: I like to keep myself a rare
0: commodity. Yeah. If you want me more. Highly valued.
2: Got to keep people guessing, you know. They never know when you're going to pop up. (laughs) Where is
0: she? (laughs) When will she pop up? Well, you've brought with you today one of, I think, one of the most talented and important journalists working in Melbourne at the moment, Michael Green. Um, He's one of the people behind... Behind the Behind the Wire project that um, gathers stories from refugees and asylum seekers who have been imprisoned in Australia's immigration detention centres on Manus and Nauru and Christmas Island. And these stories have been told in a whole lot of forums, uh, an exhibition at the Immigration Museum, a podcast and a book which we have in front of us today and we're going to talk at length about. It's called They Cannot Take the Sky, Stories from Detention. And uh, Michael Green, thanks for coming back in. Thanks very much, Callie. Thanks, Dylan really nice to see you hi mel hi michael it's a
1: rather ominous hi mel
2: (laughs) it's um it's it's an amazing book this i spent um the weekend reading it but it's not an easy read and i was kind of drawn in from the foreword by christmas solkis immediately and he started calling it a, a necessary book it's a necessary book telling stories that we haven't really heard nearly as much as we need to in australia and i wonder if that's what or why you went into this project and the other projects you do around asylum seekers that it is necessary that we we hear these stories
3: yeah so there's a there were a few writers that we started this project three years ago and basically the impetus was that we felt like there's constant commentary about immigration detention every day you know there's a news story there's someone saying it should be this or it should be that but you don't actually hear in depth from people who've had an experience in detention and and that's really what we said about doing and we we didn't have an agenda with it what we wanted to do was speak to people and find out what their experiences were um and also find out about who they were and and about their life beyond detention as well um so it's an oral history project and we started off with the idea of making a website and putting stories up as we gathered them and then it's it's turned into this huge multi-platform project
0: and the, I mean, as as I mentioned, it's a, there's an exhibition on it at the Immigration Museum. Um, you do a, a podcast, and and this book, which is a really rich source of information on exactly that. And I mean, how did you? I suppose maybe tell us about how you went about finding the people to whose stories that you included in this project.
3: Sure, yeah, it was a, it's been a long task. So when we started off, we wanted to make sure that we did it in a way that was Um, That put the narrators, so we call the people who tell their stories narrators, in control of their story. And we worked with an oral history organisation in the US called Voice of Witness that does similar human rights projects um, and found out from them how they go about it. And then we we really sort of spent a, a year figuring out the process and thinking about any legal risks there might be for people involved, how we might be able to mitigate those risks, how we could handle anonymity, um, also making sure we would be able to deal well with issues of trauma and re-traumatisation in interviewing um, and and really developing this sort of long, slow process where we'd meet with people several times before we'd do the interview, um, do interviews over several occasions, type full transcripts, work with them then to edit it down into a final f- story that they were happy with. Um, and then as we were doing that, we were slowly chatting with people. Um, we'd meet someone, ask that, tell them about the project. They'd tell someone else and we use that sort of snowball method. Um, and, and it was really hard. We met, I met with a lot of people who did, who decided they didn't want to go ahead with it, um, for whatever reason. And there are lots of reasons they might not want to. Um, but just over time, it, it gathered momentum and we, we managed to, to spread out and speak to a lot of people. We ended up doing about 50 uh, interviews, uh, of like working with 50 different people. And then in the book, there are 35 different people's stories who appear. And these are people
2: in incredibly precarious situations, particularly those who were still in mandatory detention. And, I mean, it's a huge responsibility hearing these stories and and retelling them. And I wonder if if at any point or at different points throughout the project, you kind of stopped and wondered whether the broader benefit of of telling these stories and informing people about them, about kind of the the true experience of being held in mandatory detention did in fact outweigh potentially the risk that might be brought on those people who, who put their names to a story. It's something
3: that I think about every waking moment and, and often in my not waking moments as well. Look, it's incredibly a big responsibility. Um, but also what, what we worked on in that year and, and ongoingly is in creating, um, informed consent among people who participate. So we spend a lot of time talking about exactly what the project was, exactly how it was all going to work, exactly how it was going to be used. And then, checking back at every stage, you know, constantly about whether people wanted to participate because, you know, there are lots of people who really want to participate, you know, and it's not up to me to decide whether or not they should. Mm. Um, But just so long as I can feel comfortable that I've informed them as best as I can about um, what the project is, how it's going to be used and what we think their risks might be.
0: Yeah. And you point out right at the beginning in your introduction that, uh, that the numbers of people involved and the different nationalities and you, you, there's people from many different countries involved in this project, but also the periods of detention are not just now. Some people are still in detention. Uh, our, our policies go back to 1990. Two, and you've got people that had experiences earlier as well. So it's it's quite a diverse collection of stories.
3: Yeah, you know it really is. There, there's there are people who came by plane. Um, most people came by boat, um, but there are people who came in the 90s through to people who are in offshore detention now. And and what's really amazing is how sometimes it's a matter of just days between when people came and these hugely different experiences they had you know whether they ended up being sent offshore or whether they were brought to Australia um, what visa category they're now living on um, you know we've got someone who who was in detention only for a few weeks and she tells a really powerful story as well um, and we have someone who was in detention for six years and and lots of people who are still in detention now and and the effect of it, of of that poli- you know you really see the way policy just changes uh, at one point um, someone talks about it being like a shadow um, and and you you, you can just still it's so arbitrary
1: I know we're talking about the incredibly important issues that are raised in here, but one thing that I found so compelling about this read is that it is utterly human, these characters, the people that you really feel like you get to know as you're reading them. And the detail that they pull out are definitely not details that I think, you know, a journalist wouldn't necessarily go in and look for. They're just amazingly interesting. Um, I'm just pulling out one at the moment uh, um, A man called Waheed who was in Villawood Detention Centre. So as Kalia mentioned, of course, there's a huge range of different people who've been in different types of detention. But, you know, every single one of these stories has got some really weird detail about detention that you just wouldn't, you just wouldn't rate as being part of it. And this one just really grabbed me. Um, under the subheading here I was trying not to go crazy Wahid relates they have this idea that everyone eats curry I would say maybe 70% of the food would be curry chicken curry, beef curry, lamb curry but it has to be curry that's detention centre culture they think overseas people we eat curry I remember one officer he was Australian but originally from India he was complaining to me I'm Indian and they're cooking too much curry I don't even eat that much curry it's just amazing like and, and you know you laugh but at the same time how horrible that you know that they're going through this but there is humor in this because it's a human story this is not i guess you know what's starting to be referred to as suffering porn in books where you're just you're reading things that are meant to inspire or really take you into this dark detail this is really very interesting human stuff are there any stories that really struck you michael
3: Oh, look, I mean, they all strike me. Look, I, that when you talk about it being human and rich, like for me, I now know all these people, and I've spent so much time with them. And you know, I always feel like family in in some cases with people. And it's working on this project for this amount of time. It's just like it's in my body now, <laughs> um, and. It's it's actually quite hard for me to answer that question. Mm. Um, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, you know, immediately about the people who are still in detention because I feel a real um, sense of responsibility about them, or, or you know, like care for for what happens. Uh, but then I was just like, oh, but what about uh, what about Jamila's story? My gosh, that's amazing, you know. And <laughs> it's it just kind of—it's really hard for me to, to answer. It,
2: it, It's it's really interesting, I mean, getting this human perspective, which has been done through oral history, because the issue of immigration and and mandatory detention specifically is really polarising. But it's those instances of, of humanity that are kind of littered throughout the book that kind of, in a way, give you hope some of the guards are incredibly cruel and some of them are incredibly kind at huge risk to themselves and their jobs. One of them illegally lets someone use his phone so he can call his homeland to let his family know that he's safe. And, and that kind of gives, uh, in some way, gives you some hope that people still care even though they're literally part of the system.
3: Absolutely. And, and you know, that sort of complexity is is really what we wanted because, you know, the, the people who are, who are in this book are living... Um more extreme version of of human life than most people in Australia um, but I think everyone knows the impl- complexity of going about your daily life and mm. the ups and downs of it and 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 you you read that in these books. There are such beautiful moments and there are heartbreaking moments and there are mundane moments. And
1: there's one, like, uh, this is a a piece from Donna, who was, uh, who's a, a Kurdish refugee. And she writes something that broke my heart because it really is evidence of the kind of abuse that one normally associates with war atrocities, I guess, or camps that, you know, were, you know, at times of war or, you know, under dictatorships. And she talks about how people within the camp start to distrust or dislike each other. And she talks about this under a subhead. You can feel like you're enemies. She says people were very, very mean. Everyone was doing things for themselves. It was like an every man for himself kind of thing. Like if you said hello to a girl and her mother saw that, she would spank that child and say, don't say hello to so-and-so's daughter again. I told you not to say hello to anybody, which is the kind of, you know, torment that I guess, you know, when you're, you know, I guess in ethnic cleansing situations when you're trying to break a community, these are the sorts of things that you see. To think about this being vulnerable people who've arrived or try to arrive to Australia as asylum seekers, being treated in that manner, it's really horrific.
3: Yeah, but, you know, then again, there's extraordinary stories of incredible friendships that formed in detention. Mm-hmm. Like there's this one story, um, uh, anonymous narrator, his name is Lena, she talks about this, she was a teenage girl and she came and she talks about this friendship which is almost like overpowering and that is that teenage girl friendship which i think a lot of people would kind of relate to and and it's this love and she talks about how you know she can't stand her but she loves her and 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 then um she sort of ends up saying you know she's been released from detention but her heart is still there
1: I also want to talk about this amazing title because that's from one of the uh, incredible writers in this or incredible speakers, I guess, because this is oral histories that have been recorded, um, Beruz Bichani, whose writing has appeared in collections um, and who I think is, is you know, obviously um, really being, uh, you know, Penn International is trying to to bring him to Australia as an extraordinary talent because he's a, a writer that's been been trapped there. Um, they cannot take the sky is something that he wrote um, about his time in detention. Um, Beruz is particularly interesting because he talks about the importance of you know of trying to describe using language to describe things, and he says I never he never refers to the detention facility as a camp. He only ever refers to it as a prison because words matter, and I just thought that was an extraordinary detail.
3: Yeah, I mean Beruz is quite an extraordinary guy. Um, I actually went to Manus Island. And I spent um, probably about seven hours um, talking to him for the story that appears in the, the book, and it's the it's the prologue for the book. And um, and he was very clear that um, he says that only he, he's written articles all over the place, um, but he feels like no one can understand what it's like to be in detention, in journalistic language. Um, You need literary language to be able to understand that. And one of the reasons that we chose uh, his story to be the first in the book is that we felt like it really set the scene for what we were trying to achieve with the project, Um, to go beyond facts uh, to something that is going to strike at the heart um, of the reader.
0: And I want to talk a little bit more about him, but I'll remind people who and what we're talking about. Um, they Cannot Take the Sky is a book we're talking about, stories from detention, and it's part of a broader Behind the Wire project. Uh, and we have Michael Green with us. He co-edited the book with Andre Dow and uh, is part of the exhibition as well that's on at the Immigration Museum and a remarkable project all round. a beautiful book. And, I mean, when reading that prologue and the... I suppose that first story in this book, what struck me is the sophistication of his understanding of Australian public opinion. Can I call it that? I mean, this idea that we say the word man is here and people understand it now to be terrible prison island uh, or you know, punishment or whatever people think but he sees it as a beautiful island in Papua New Guinea whose name has been lent to this detention centre. He has all this sophisticated understanding and I wonder, I mean that comes through in the story but is that can you tell us a little bit more about him? I mean he has this depth of knowledge of of humanity that I think many of us lack perhaps.
3: Yeah, so Beru's studied political science um, in Tehran. He's a Kurdish man, um, and he was a, a political journalist in in Iran, and um, he had to flee. He is incredibly thoughtful, and and also he he has a he says as well, you know, in in prison you have a lot of time to reflect, and he's spent a lot of time thinking very deeply and carefully about. Um, his life there and his there's some beautiful moments like there's this one where he talks about reflecting on a relationship a past relationship um, and he, he gets this chance to to call he gets a chance to call he's been um, held in prison for a while and then in isolation and he gets given a phone and he can't remember his family's number and he just has this number in his head and he realises it's for an ex-girlfriend he hadn't spoken to for five years and he just he he says yes I'll call her and she didn't know any anything about where he was and he said I'm in prison I'm calling you from prison and he said they spoke for about ten minutes and he apologised to her for some of the wrongs in in their relationship and then she apologised to him and he says it was a beautiful moment um, but it's also such a powerful you know this is the sort of thing it he's not talking about detention. But he is talking about detention. Um, and it says so much about his circumstances.
1: Um, now, you, Michael, mentioned to me that part of the inspiration for how this book was structured was uh, was based on another book. Um, and obviously in, in Reading Room we like to talk about the books that our writers and editors uh, are inspired by. Can you talk a little bit about the Svetlana Alexievich, um, her book... Voices from
3: Chernobyl. So Svetlana Aleksevich is um, a Russian Belarusian writer and um, she won the Nobel Prize for Literature a couple of years ago. And she has produced a large number of oral history books, sort of often around the the fall of the USSR. USSR. Um, And... The reason that this particular book, Voices from Chernobyl, was inspirational for us was that you read it and you think, what questions did she ask to get those answers? (laughs) Um, And so you actually don't understand anything about the nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl, having read it. But you understand what it was like for the men as they went to try and clean it up and their families as they watched the skin fall off the men afterwards um and but not that they were repulsed by it but they still loved them and they loved them even more and they couldn't tear themselves away from it and so i was just reading it and i was thinking you've got to ask these kinds of deep questions about love and god and jealousy and regret um and dreams and nightmares and those kinds of things and and really that was where we went um, in our discussions with narrators. Um in, in the same way that um, I gave that story from Beru's earlier, those were the sorts of things um, where you're talking about something larger about your aspirations or hopes and dreams or um, a, as a human, but the situation that you're in adds so much depth and complexity to it.
1: Absolutely, and I feel like you really did achieve that. I just kind of want to give a... It- Tiny, tiny taste of the, of the book that we're discussing, um, which is a section under the title Monologue about a man whose tooth was hurting when he saw Christ fall, which is just genius. Um, it sort of begins, I was thinking about something else then. You'll find this strange, but I was splitting up with my wife. And then the speaker goes on to talk about, um, that the people that came for him, And if you'd read this in isolation, you would have no idea that this had anything to do with the Chernobyl disaster. He says, they came suddenly, gave me a notice and said, there's a car waiting downstairs. It was like 1937, the year of Stalin's great terror. So you get this idea of like, you know, it was basically them coming to take him away, which they kind of were but it's really again that idea of what you just said of what kinds of questions are you asking to really get to the human sort of experience of a, a dramatic event so that it's just you're not just getting the same kind of details rehashed.
3: And the other thing that um, Alexievich does is spend a lot of time with her, with the people she speaks to I, I read something where she said she would she called someone 17 times following up on, on small details she wanted to clarify or um, them to expand upon and you know you can't ask someone about um how they felt facing death when you first meet them (laughs) you develop a relationship with someone and then um it's not extractive to ask those kinds of questions and it's a it's a conversation that 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 you want to be part of and that they want to be part of
2: and you mentioned that in in the course of this project the book the podcast and and everything else that you're doing in this area that you you know you still have contact with these people do you find or think you've kind of made friends lifelong friends in the course of doing this beyond just the the pragmatics i guess of the projects that you're involved in
3: oh yeah absolutely um i we because we've got so many different parts of the project uh, um, I'm constantly in touch with people talking about it, but not only that, just checking in about their their lives and um, I've had a lot of people stay with me, you know, when they visit Melbourne and, um, yeah, I'm just very connected with everyone who's part of it now.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I want um, I want you to talk more about what's happening with, you know, with the podcast and the Immigration Museum and all that sort of stuff, but I wonder beyond the projects that you're working on right now, this book that's an amazing, where is this going? Where's Beyond the Wire taking taking you and all the people involved with it because it's been going for, what, a year and a half or something to well, date? Or? Well, it's
3: about three years we've been working three. on it at this point. Um, it's all just launched in the last... Um, the book and the exhibition were open last week and the podcast has um, been going since late January. So it's all kind of hitting the public now. Uh, We really hope that we can tour the exhibition around the country. Um, We just need to figure out (laughs) the mechanics of that. Um, The book, look, we'd love to um, work on education resources for it. We think that um, it's something that can stand the test of time and we we made it so that it wasn't something... uh, It's not a, a, a news and current affairs book that that is only relevant for a brief period. Uh, we're hoping that it's something that will stand the test of time. Um, beyond that, hopefully I'm going to get a little bit of sleep and then I'll be able to think about what happens. <laughs> well,
0: I should say that, you know, Dylan uh, said at the beginning that Chris Hoschalkus was, you know, he's, he said this is a necessary book. He also compared it to um, George Orwell's 1984. He compared it to The Diary of Anne Frank on this necessary read list. And, I mean, that must feel pretty good to have it compared like that but it is in that league Uh, we need this information and I suppose how do you get it other than things like this how do you get it into people's hands we want people to go and congratulate Ellen and Unwin and go out and buy it and share it and give it to family and friends but how do you get the word out
3: well we're trying as much as possible to work with uh, narrators who are a part of the project to um, do media where they can um, and That can be a bit tricky because not everyone's willing and able to do that. Uh, we, I guess I feel like because of, we have, it is this multi-platform project. It's gonna, it lives many lives and it can get to people in different ways.
1: And the podcast, The Messenger. Which we refer to actually includes one of the people that appears in this book, Aziz, who's a a Sudanese refugee who's still on Manners, with whom you developed a relationship, um, through WhatsApp messages, uh, which is just extraordinary to listen to. So I think if people are listening to that podcast and, you know, and want to hear more from Aziz, they can also see him in this book. But that's an incredible, I suppose, vehicle as well for sort of looking at the broader issues around um, the you know, the whole kind of draconian asylum uh, process that we currently have in Australia, but definitely a worthwhile listen.
3: Yeah, it's a 10-part series and it's just such a... It's so wonderful to be able to go into that kind of depth and you, I mean, really get to know Aziz um, and you get to know him as I do uh, because the, I've been speaking to him almost every day for over a year and we've exchanged... About over four thousand voice messages, and um, the podcast follows that conversation, and it you just you do get so connected to him, um, and it and it does explore a wide and deep. Um, kind of context for the policies that have led him to be in that situation. We've been taught, I guess, almost by default
2: from the nature of politics over the past decade and more really and and the the nature of the issues that elections have been fought on, that the only real way ahead is to have an incredibly cruel immigration policy for a party to win government through this process. Have you had conversations or people contact you who might not have been all that sympathetic to um, you know, a a positive or much less draconian um, asylum seeker on board Protection policy that now understand that that we really can't continue on this path that it is incredibly incredibly cruel.
3: Uh, I heard the other day someone that had been listening to the podcast who was uh, yeah anti-immigration and now had started volunteering at ASRC, which was quite a <laughs> quite an extraordinary thing to hear. Look, it's hard to make uh, something like this and have a have some sort of an agenda to. To change people's minds. It's sort of not really the purpose of it. Mm. What we're trying to do is speak to people find out about their stories and put them down as they want them to, to be, you know, to, and to, to help draw out the resonant um, and strong themes in what they say. If, if I were trying to change government policy, I'd find that a, a bit of a depressing um, task.
0: Mm. What about the Immigration Museum? So, Um, It tells lots of stories. Some of these people haven't been able to immigrate here, you know, that their immigration policies is why they're in prisons or, you know, um, on islands. How does it fit with the Immigration Museum, the exhibition that's on? And it's on until July, so people can go and see it.
3: Yeah, so the Immigration Museum has a really um, long um, track record of, of working with communities to put on community groups, and and they worked with us on that basis. It was a community exhibition, and um, and it is the same, uh, just first person direct storytelling. So we have we worked with some amazing filmmakers who um, we. we and also with a a committee of our narrators who directed that exhibition. So there are obviously people who are in the community here, although some of them are, um, are still on bridging visas and they designed the mood and the feel and the experience of the exhibition. And they uh, worked with us to pick the excerpts from the book that we would convert into audio and video stories. Um, and, and then we worked with, of course, all the individuals who who were in it too. Um, so, yeah, there are some people who aren't in Australia, um, but they have an experience of Australian-run immigration detention centres. Yes, um, they do.
0: More than anybody, many people have. And interestingly, uh, the
1: book was launched um, as the exhibition was launched at the uh, Immigration Museum, and there was Victorian government representation there, which I found enormously interesting. Um, that's that's certainly some step forward, I think.
3: Yeah, the Creative Industries Minister, Martin Foley, launched the, the book and the exhibition. Um, and made quite a powerful and political speech um, on the night. I'm not sure whether it's got any coverage yet, but hopefully there'll be a little bit of video that'll come out.
1: So you might say that perhaps, uh, you know, attempting to change policy is not necessarily the agenda here, but at the same time it may be an outcome that, that could be more possible from airing these
3: stories. Yeah, look, I mean... It, Yes, but, but I, I just... The book and the podcast and the exhibition, it, people speak for themselves and people have a range of experiences, they have a range of views um, and and I don't think... We don't want people to engage with it as a something that they need to read out of duty or they need to read if they want to think they're a good person or to absolve themselves of the sin of being (laughs) australian (laughs) and when there is this detention center regime occurring these are really incredible beautiful stories they're funny they're going to make you cry um but it's you know it's just about letting people speak for themselves and so i I really don't want um, it to be shoehorned into into one particular agenda
0: has it changed the way that you work as a journalist Michael because as I said at the beginning I I really uh, respect the work that you've done as a journalist for a long time this is oral history it's it's different to the other stuff that you've done prior is it going to change the kinds of stories you tell or the way you tell them you think
3: it's a really good question and I, I I love this I really loved it um in some senses, it was a the logical extension of the way I had been working. I always worked really closely with people, and carefully, and slowly, and um, and made sure that they were involved in the final product that I was making. Um, but the the joy of this was getting to spend so much time with people, you know, and also not to try and interpret their words you know, I don't want to go overboard with that because it is a, it's a dance between the two of us. Um, but to really put the power, um, back onto the person that I'm working with and to get to know them so well, it just felt like the right, it feels like the right thing for me to do. So I hope that I'll be able to work in this way, um, again.
0: Yeah, me too. Uh, congratulations on the project and to everyone involved with it and uh, we've been speaking with Michael Green and Mel Um Michael's one of the co-editors of a book, uh, They Cannot Take the Sky Stories from Detention uh, congrats to Ellen and Unwin as well for publishing this book and you can see the exhibition at the uh, Immigration Museum and they have their own website as well you can't miss them really um, look up Behind the Wire and you can also find your way to the podcast that you can keep up to date with the storytelling that is taking place in the oral history project that is ongoing and uh michael green thanks so much for coming in it's been really great and um i commend this book to everybody listening and um, we'll catch you again in a month mel Looking forward
2: to it. We're going to talk all about the Philippines now, where President Rodrigo Duterte's war on drugs continues to rage on. Since his inauguration midway through last year and the beginning of his crackdown on drug addicts and users, over 7,000 people have reportedly been killed. And while Duterte continues to claim that the majority of the killings have been carried out by rival gangs and vigilantes, a recent report by Human Rights Watch directly implicates the philippines national police in both a range of killings and in falsifying evidence you might have heard also that australia's foreign minister julie bishop met with president duterte on a diplomatic visit over this past week this has sparked calls from some for australia to strongly condemn the violence and follow that up with action and withdraw some of our assistance to the nation to talk more about the report and the associated issues we have on the line elaine Pearson. she's the australian director of human rights watch thanks very much for being on the show today elaine
4: Thanks a lot for having me.
2: And so it's been difficult to ascertain uh, over the course of Duterte's presidency exactly who's been carrying out these killings and why. I wonder if you can start by taking us through what you sought to discover in your investigation and ultimately what
4: you found. Yeah, I mean, so we sent uh, the leader of our emergencies division to the Philippines and he was there for a period of weeks um, documenting these killings. By the Philippines police own admission, there have been more than 7,000 deaths over a period of seven months um, since Duterte took office. And we know that President Duterte has made many statements um, directly inciting people um, who are doing drugs, who are pushing drugs to be killed. He's made statements like, if you're still into drugs, I'm going to kill you after he won the Philippines election. He said, this isn't a joke. I'll really kill you. So, you know, what we found is that, you know, in several thousand of those cases, the police have been implicated in those killings. They claim that um, it's been self-defense. However, in other cases, um, more than half of the number of 7,000 killings have been by unidentified gunmen. And what we found in our investigation is that Philippines police are actually falsifying evidence in order to justify these killings. So the killings tend to um, form a pattern. You have roaming groups of masked gunmen roaming the streets of the slums at night time they will knock on the door they will go to the home of someone um, and then you know these people wind up um, dead and what we found in a number of these cases we looked at about uh, 32 cases of killings and we looked at the police reports we then interviewed eyewitnesses family members and so on some of those people were actually um, admittedly in police custody just before they were killed um, but, you know, what we found was that often drugs, ammunition, guns uh, were placed on the victims' bodies to implicate them in drug activities. And, you know, these people are really, you know, the poor, the poorest of the poor. These are people living in Manila slums. They can barely afford enough to eat. They really can't afford to to own weapons and guns. And um, the... So, you know, this, these are just some of the findings that, that we found in our investigation.
2: And that's one of the saddest things from reading through your report. I mean... Duterte's claim that, you know, he needs to crack down on drug traffickers to kind of stamp out the the drug epidemic in the Philippines, but your report suggests that it's overwhelmingly the poor drug users um, sort of living in slums who are overwhelmingly the victims of the violence.
4: Well, that's right. I mean, in, you know, nearly all of the cases that we investigated, the victims were, you know, desperately poor. Um, Some of them were drug users. A lot of them, you know, were working as rickshaw drivers or porters carrying heavy equipment. Sometimes they say that, you know, taking methamphetamines made it easier for them to to do the work. So certainly there's an admission that some people are, are using drugs. Um, but in, I think, pretty much all of the cases that we investigated, they were certainly not tre- dealing drugs um, at all. So the claim that this is targeting drug lords and drug pushers simply isn't true.
0: And what does it do to the psychology of a nation? Or how do people feel on the ground, Elaine, when this is going on in in their country?
4: Well, look, there's sort of mixed feelings. I would say um, the President Duterte still actually has a lot of... Um, put, Popular support um, from regular people. He's been able to present this very much that there's a drugs crisis in the Philippines. Previous administrations haven't been able to deal with it. He's the man of the people who's going to come in and fix this. Um, and fixing this requires, you know, quite drastic measures. However, as more and more people are winding up dead, I think um, this is chipping away at his uh, popular support. But the reality is, you know, these are very poor people. Um, They're the underbelly of society. There's not a hell of a lot of sympathy from them from the Philippines middle class. And so that's actually why it's been quite difficult um, to to speak about these issues. Um, And then the other issue is that, you know, in addition to the killings that have been going on, uh, any efforts to hold uh, the Philippines government accountable for these killings have also been um, quickly acted upon. So the most vocal critic, um, a senator, Leila De Lima, is now herself um, in jail, and she herself is actually facing charges, um, trumped-up drug charges, um, because she had actually tried to initiate a Senate investigation into these killings. So that really sends a message for local Filipinos, civil society, that if even a senator um, is not protected raising these issues, it actually makes people very uncomfortable um, talking about these issues or raising these issues, because 7,000 people are, have been killed. People think, well, what's, you know, what's next? Who, who's to say that I'm not next going to be on the, on the list?
2: And I understand there was, there was an attempt last week to impeach Duterte, which had little hope of success because he, he controls the House. But do you think there will be um, kind of future attempts to, to curtail his power or, or bring him down, given those threats that you've just identified are, are very real and, and very much exist?
4: Oh, I think so. I mean, I think the thing with um, Duterte is that he, you know, he's made so many clear statements inciting these killings. Um, and in addition, he has command responsibility over the police. So I think it's very clear that um, there is a case to be made before the International Criminal Court that crimes against humanity um, have been committed. We certainly allege that there is a case to be made there, that the ICC should look into it. And I think, you know, if Duterte continues in this vein of, you know, completely justifying unlawful killings... Um, then you know he is going to find that there there is going to be opposition in this way, and you know one day he may end up um, indeed in the dock um, to face charges of crimes against humanity in front of the International Criminal Court.
2: If you just tuned in, we're talking with Elaine Pearson. She's the Australian Director at Human Rights Watch. And we're speaking all about a report they released over the past couple of weeks called Licence to Kill, Philippine Police Killings in Duterte's War on Drugs. And you wrote in The Guardian last week, Elaine, about Julie Bishop's visit to the Philippines, which um, I understand happened just over the weekend. And you argued that she should be very careful about giving tacit approval and legitimacy to Duterte's policies by kind of standing with him for photo opportunities and all that goes with such diplomatic visits. She's since been there. Do you have any sense of um, whether she did put the case firmly against uh, Duterte's government and um, really made Australia's voice clear in, in condemning it?
4: Well, certainly she didn't make any public statements condemning the drug killings, which I think is a mistake. I mean, she went to Davao City. It wasn't a meeting with him in Manila. She went to his hometown where Duterte was the mayor for 20 years. And as mayor of Davao City, um, you know, he actually initiated the use of death squads. Um, to to target uh, street children, drug users and, and criminals. And that was the precursor to the current nationwide drug war that is taking place. So certainly we thought that, you know, it's very strange that she would honour Duterte by going all the way to Davao um, for that meeting. Duterte um, sub- subsequently said in a press conference on Sunday... That Australia did not raise human rights; that they were very courteous in the meetings, which is really, I think, quite disgusting. When you think that 7,000 people have been killed, Australia is running for a seat on the Human Rights Council. Now, clearly, when you know a huge number of deaths have happened, um, it's really important that Australia, you know, makes its position very clear and raises concerns with, you know, these governments and asks them, you know, puts them on the spot about what has happened. And it seems like even in private, there was absolutely zero discussion uh with Duterte about the killings and I think that's a real mistake for Australia to make
0: and Julie Bishop has in the past I mean she's stared down um Russian diplomats hasn't she in in the international community so she she does she can do it if if the will is there
4: oh absolutely I mean Julie Bishop has <laughs> stared down um Russian diplomats, as you mentioned, and I mean, we certainly suggested in in our op-ed before she went that, you know, if anyone is worthy for the Julie Bishop death stare, it's (laughs) certainly Duterte. Um, But, you know, instead, she posted a photo on Twitter herself of herself shaking hands with Duterte, saying that they had important discussions on counterterrorism and other issues, but not a peep at all about human rights. Um, So unfortunately, I mean, it looks like Australia's foreign minister just made a pilgrimage to the home of a self-confessed killer. Um, And I don't think that that's the look that Australia should be going for. I think, you know, she should be thinking long and hard um, before posting photographs of herself with someone who could eventually be indicted by the International Criminal Court.
0: And I mean, I'm interested in hearing what other parties to the, the court saying, you know, the UN and, and, and the like, but with regards to um, Australia and our relations to the Philippines, are they big with international trade or trade with us? What 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 are our connections there?
4: I mean, there's, I would say there's, you know, a significant trade relationship. I don't think, you know, it's the most important one. I think the there are important relationships in terms of security. Australia after the US, I think is... You know, one of the larger uh, providers of military assistance and military training to the Philippines. Um, We have certainly suggested that it would be appropriate for Australia to immediately suspend any um, programs with the Philippine National Police given um the allegations in our report and in reports of other human rights organizations about the abuses in the war of drugs and the role of the the police i mean we don't think there's any role really in capacity building or training or assistance when police are going around and you know executing uh individuals in cold blood as is happening right now in in the philippines
2: and we haven't heard anything yet from the government on on stopping that assistance
4: no, we haven't. I mean, that's certainly an issue that we've been, uh, you know, calling on, on the government to do. Um, in fact, we'll be having a meeting with Australian members of Parliament um, and senators this week um, at Parliament House, and that's certainly something that we'll be asking them to, to follow up on. But so so far there's been no commitment um, from Australia to, to do that, although I do understand that the Defence Minister was asked last week about... Um, extending additional military assistance to the Philippines and had said that no decision had been made to extend um, any additional military aid to the
2: Philippines. Australia has been criticised internationally in the past, including by the UN for its uh, human rights record and particularly treatment of refugees. And I wonder if, um, in your opinion, that at all drives any reluctance on the part of Australia to make really strong representations and statements about the human rights record of other countries when, you know, we potentially can be very embarrassed about our own actions.
4: Well, yes, certainly I think that does factor into it. And I think, you know, the easiest way for Australia to avoid that criticism is to address the shortcomings in its own human rights record. But Australia doesn't seem very willing to to do that. But look, I mean, I think all governments have their own problems with human rights issues. No government has a completely squeaky clean record. So I don't think that should be used as an excuse to give other countries um, a, a free pass on human rights. And especially at a time where Australia seems to be making um, a very strong pitch for why it should sit on the Human Rights Council. The Human Rights Council is the world's global um, premier human rights body, and we want to make sure that countries that sit on that body are going to, you know, really push the bar in terms of um, getting governments that are committing abuses um, and holding those governments to account. And, you know, this is a case where um, our organisation, Amnesty International um, and others are saying that there's a strong case to be made that crimes against humanity have been committed. So this would be a very clear case where the Human Rights Council need to act and I think it speaks volumes that Australia was just absolutely silent uh, when it went when Bishop went to the Philippines last week. I mean, how are you actually going to get governments to stop their abuses if you won't even talk to them um, and have a discussion with them about it?
0: Very good question.
2: Yeah, we'll um, we'll continue to watch the Philippines and all that happens there with interest. It's incredibly um, brave and important work that Human Rights Watch is doing, and uh, we thank you very much, Elaine, for coming on the show today to um, shed some light on what's happening over in the Philippines.
4: Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on.
2: Pleasure. It's Elaine Pearson, the Australia Director at Human Rights Watch, talking about their new report into the Philippines' drug war. It's called Licence to Kill, Philippine Police Killings in Duterte's War on Drugs. And it's a pretty enlightening and ultimately really sad read about what's happening over there. And, um, yeah, we keep an eye on things as they progress.
0: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.